My name is Sawyer. It's great to be with you all this morning. I'm coming from Bayview Glen. That's in North York. And I have a treat. I brought a treat for you all. You're going to like this. That wasn't it. All right. Oh. They said use the one on the keyboard. Let me find. <laughs> this message wasn't supposed to be that funny off the start, but here we go. All right. Here we go. <clears throat> I'll start with you. October 5th. Remember that date, okay? And uh, young man, I'll do this for you. June 29th. It's my birthday. And for you. December 1st. Great. These are the days you will die. Um, Go in peace. <laughs> Shalom in the home. Now, okay, obviously that's a joke. That's a joke. It's a joke. Don't read into it. But if that was how your death was determined, that would be ridiculous, right? That would feel so impersonal, such a strange way to receive such terrible news. But a lot of times the, the bad things, the difficult turns in our life, sometimes it, it feels like that. There's no rhyme or reason. It just falls into your lap, and, and that's it. You move across the country for a new job, and two months later, the company goes under. And that's that. You buy a new home, and surprise, it needs $50,000 in repairs. Or you're doing a job interview, and your internet cuts out, and now you don't get the position. And is there any rhyme or reason to it all? It's hard to say. My wife and I just had friends whose child passed away uh, when she was nine days old. Nine days old. It was sudden infant death syndrome. There's nothing anyone did. It's a statistic. It just happens. And when these things take place, at, at the funeral, people were saying, oh, this is, this is God's will. She's in a better place now. And I found it didn't really address the question for me. Was was this God's will that the child should pass? Did He cause this to happen? Or no, no, He didn't cause it to happen, but He just allowed it to happen. Okay, that doesn't really answer the question either. If He allowed it to happen, why wouldn't He want to stop it? Isn't God all-loving? Why couldn't He figure out a way to do it? Isn't He all-knowing? If He's all-powerful, why couldn't He pull it off? Circumstances like this can raise this question in our heart. This question is simply, where is God's providence in my pain? Providence is a very pointed term. Providence means purposeful sovereignty. Sovereignty just means having power, being in control. Dictators are sovereign. But providence is purposeful sovereignty. All power pointed at a specific cause or a purpose. So when we go through these challenges in our life that feel random, that just happen to us, how much are we subject to happenstance? How much are we subject to God's providence? If you've ever asked this question, I would invite you to join me today in Esther chapter 3 as we look at how we can find God's providence in our pain. At Bayview Glen, we're going through a series in the book of Esther. Let me catch you up to date very quickly. We're starting in chapter 3. In the last two chapters, we see that God's people, Israel, 
They're in Persia. They're exiled in Persia due to their disobedience. Now they're living as foreigners in a strange land. The king, the ruler of Persia, is Xerxes. Sometimes in the Hebrew they refer to him as Ahasuerus. And the book opens with Xerxes coming back from victory in the battlefield. And so to celebrate, he throws a six-month-long party with all of his friends, all the boys to show off all of his stuff. They drink all the wine. And about six months in, they're, they're running out of things to do and show off. So he calls on his queen Vashti to come in, and he wants to show her off to this room of drunk men in a way that probably wasn't um, too dignifying for her. It wasn't calling attention to her wit and charm. We'll just leave it at that. She says, no, I'm not going in there probably wise of her. The king is offended by this, and his advisors say, hey man, you don't have to take that. Banish the queen. So he banishes the queen. He passes an edict that all the women in the land should respect their husbands. Seems like overkill. Now in chapter 2, King Xerxes comes back from a defeat on the battlefield, and he's feeling kind of dejected, tail between his legs, and his advisors, again, they come to him. It's a bunch of young men advising another man. What could go wrong? (laughs) And they say to him, hey Xerxes, we got an idea to cheer you up. How about we go through all of Persia, all the land, and we round up 200 of the finest looking ladies. All for you, Xerxes. But there's more. It gets better. We'll give them a whole year to look their best. You know how they always take 10 minutes, 20 minutes to get ready? No, 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 no. We'll give you a whole year. And then... You can survey the lot. It's like Costco. We'll buy in bulk and you can sample. You can sample the ladies. Once you've had your fill, you get to pick which one will be the queen and you can keep the rest as well. Okay? And he goes, yeah, me like you. Mm, good. So they have the first season of The Bachelor in all of Persia. Here enters, it's in the book, trust me, <laughs> Esther and Mordecai. Esther is probably a teenage Jewish woman. Her parents have passed away, and she has a much older cousin named Mordecai. He basically takes her in as her adopted father figure type sorts. She gets chosen. She goes into the harem, and over the course of a year, she earns favor, and she is chosen by King Xerxes to be the queen of Persia. Okay? Not great to be in the king's harem, but I guess if you're top of the pack, it's advantageous. And chapter 2 finishes with another promising note because Mordecai, when he's peeking in on Esther, overhears a plot of people who want to assassinate the king. He hears it. He tells the king. They stop the assassination attempt, and the two assassins are publicly crucified, okay? So you think maybe something good is going to happen. Maybe he's going to get a thank you. Maybe he's going to get a nice card or a pat on the back. Things like things... It seems like things are going to take a turn for the better. This is where we begin in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. So let's read here. In chapter 1 it says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatta, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. After all these things, that was five years. You think in five years... You know, he could send a thank you card, get him a gift card to Tim Hortons, lifetime supply of jelly beans, what's going to happen? Mordecai does not get the promotion, and instead it says, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatta. It's interesting, in Hebrew literature, usually when a person is introduced, 
How they're introduced gives you an idea about the role they play in the narrative. So when Mordecai is introduced in chapter 2, it says Mordecai, the Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. He's not introduced as a wise man or a political figure. It says Mordecai is Israel. He's the representative figure of them. Haman is introduced as the Agagite. So these two people are representative figures of these people groups. I can tell this doesn't mean much to you. But the original audience, as soon as they saw this, they would have started yelling, the Agagites! The Agagites! We hate them! Those are our enemies! Because when Israel was formed and they were in the desert, the very first people to try and wipe them out was this people group. It was the Amalekites. Amalek from them comes Agag, the Agagites. These were the first Hitlers. These were the first people to try and wipe them out. So when God is talking to Israel on Mount Sinai on the Sinai Covenant, this is Exodus chapter 7, He says, I will be your God. You will be My people. I will bless those who bless you. I will persecute those who persecute you. So if there's a people group dedicated to destroying you, I'll handle it. It's not going to be a problem. This is the tension from the very beginning. Mordecai gets no promotion and the enemy of God's people is promoted. If you feel like you have a terrible boss and you could save their life and they wouldn't promote you, that's biblical. Bad bosses are in the Bible. This is the tension that begins here. So now, the enemy of God's people has just been promoted to second in command. God's people are in exile because of their disobedience. But according to their covenant promises, God's going to protect them and deliver them. Will God be true to His promises, to His covenant, even when Israel is not? This is all that's happened in the first couple verses. So let's continue reading now. Verse 2, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. So Haman's sitting on the throne. He says, everyone who comes before me, they must bow down. They must pay honor. They must give homage to me. And it's kind of awkward because Mordecai does not. He goes on his tippy toes. He says, I'm not bowing. I'm actually anti-bowing. And this is, this is strange. This is kind of problematic. You can debate this at Swiss Chalet after. Was it wrong for Mordecai to bow or not? It, culturally, it, it was custom. That's how you showed reverence. In cultures today, bowing is still a symbol of honor. If you're in the military, you salute the uniform. If you go before the monarchy in the UK, you, you bow, you curtsy. It was a sign of respect. Mordecai decides this is where he's going to draw the line. His adopted daughter being sexually exploited by the king, no problem. Hey, go for it, man. No problem. He didn't say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish. You can't do this to, to my family member. But bowing, that's where he draws the line. I'm not bowing. I'm anti-bowing. Didn't bow yesterday. Didn't bow today. Guess who's got two thumbs and isn't bowing tomorrow? This guy. He says, I'm a Jew. I'm not going to bow to this guy. So, what happens at this point? Verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. 
I won't bow down. Fine. I'll destroy you and all of your people. Kind of backfired, didn't it? Mordecai thought he's going to play the religious freedom card, see if that works. Now he and everyone are in a lot of trouble in this case. Now it's, if you want to pause, it's important when we read the Bible that we don't kind of look at it with this self-serving, condescending, moralistic approach that, okay, there's the good guys and the bad guys. I'm like the good guys and the bad guys are nothing like me. That The Bible isn't really filled with good guys and bad guys. It's filled with bad guys who need Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that hate and murder are on the same highway. It's the same path of the heart. So we can look at Mordecai and think, that guy's terrible. But who are the people in our life that we think, my life would be so much easier if they weren't around? We should check ourselves. Reading this should make us humble. Mordecai says he's not going to bow. And Haman says, fine, I will destroy you and all of your people. This is where we're at now. This is where the portion has come in the story. Things keep going from bad to worse. There's no promotion, and now genocide has been declared. So, let's continue on in verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, Nisan, the month of the Altima, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor. This is their term for lots. They cast lots before Haman, day after day. This is how they determined the day of the genocide. They cast lots. And they cast it month after month to determine when in the year it would happen. Month after month. Till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, he's going to say three things. He's going to say a truth, a half-truth and a lie. It's very cunning what he says next. He says, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. That's true. He doesn't say who. There is a certain people. Oh, wise, good king that you are. Their laws are different from those of every other people. It's a half-truth. And they do not keep the king's laws. That's not true. So that it is not to the king's prophet to tolerate them. Do you, see, do you feel how slimy this is? That's just me. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from the hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatta. Look how they're reinforcing this. The enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also. Do with them as it seems good to you. They just had a military failure. Country isn't looking too good. Haman says, hey, there's a people here. They're all over the place. They're, they're not in your best interest to tolerate. They don't honor you. They don't respect your laws. We should deal with that. And also, it's going to put 10,000 talents back in your pocket. That was about 30% of the national GDP. That was no small sum. Xerxes doesn't know these people. He doesn't know faces. He only knows figures. He just knows dollar signs. He says, Ugh, me likey. Sounds good. It's poor leadership takes his signet ring, this was the seal of the king, gives it to him to enact this. In the Persian legal system, laws couldn't be overturned. They couldn't be overruled. They couldn't cancel it. Once this was signed and sealed, it was done. So let's keep reading now in verse 12. 
when the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written by the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Genocide has now been declared and it can't go back. It can't be overruled. And it's interesting they mentioned the date because the day that this is being signed and sealed is the eve before Passover. This is when God's people are preparing to celebrate how God protected them and delivered them from their enemies. And at the same time, genocide is being sealed and declared by the most powerful nation in the world. Verse 13 finishes the chapter. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. Look at the repetition there. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, and in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. That's the capital city. Now listen to this. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The decree goes out to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all of the Jews, young and old, little girls with pigtails, little boys playing down by the river, grandmas and grandpas, grandpa who can't even hear the door being broken in, grandma who can't get up fast enough in time. Destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the people. And then two things happen in this last verse. The king and Haman sat down to drink. They said, hey man, we just signed a great deal today. We're going to make a lot of money. And they sit down and crack a cold one while the capital city is thrown into confusion. This is important to see. The capital city, the people that are not the Jews, they're thrown into confusion. What? We're going to annihilate all of these people, the Israelites? But, but these are our neighbors. Th- these are our friends. We work together. Our kids play together. We occupy the same spaces. I think this is one of the things that should be the mission of the church. In the kind of mid-Roman Empire, when persecution against the Christians was racking up, it's very interesting that the leaders of all the provinces around were writing in and saying, please stop killing the Christians. We can't function without them. They're the ones who take care of our widows. They're the ones who take care of the elderly. These are the ones who who take care of the children and the orphans and the sick. Stop killing all the Christians. We actually need them to survive. And that could be our hope for God's people, that we have such a place in our community that if persecution comes, they would defend us. They would recognize our absence. They say, hey, we know that we don't believe the same thing as them, but we are loved well by them. They love us. They take care of us. They show us a care and a love even though we disagree on these things. That even if a day came for the church in the West, the persecution came, that our neighbors would defend us in this way. It's a hope. It's a hope. I see that and it makes me happy. And then that's it. 
that's how the story ends. Things seem to go from bad to worse. And when that decree is coming forth and it's being sent out, that, that seems like the perfect time for something miraculous by God to happen. Fire from heaven, a message in the clouds. He could send a, a John Wick archangel to put Haman in a holy headlock and say, take it back. Say you love the Jews. Say it. Say it. Nothing happens. It seems quiet. God's presence seems absent. Let me, let me summarize for you briefly how things have gone from bad to worse. Number one, God's people should not have been in Persia. They shouldn't have been there. They were disobedient, and now they're exiled into a foreign land. That's problem number one. Problem number two, Esther should not be the queen of Persia. This is basically glorified ancient human trafficking. She was a young woman. She should have had the opportunity to have a husband who was a godly man that loved her. She shouldn't have been taken away by her family. She should have had this opportunity to raise a good godly family with a man who loved her, and instead she's with this power-hungry, incompetent, selfish narcissist. Esther should not be the queen of Persia. Third, Mordecai should not have been overlooked. He saved the king's life. He shouldn't have been passed over. Simply poor leadership, incompetence. He got the short end of the stick. Next one, Haman should never have been born. People always laugh at that one. Here's why. Saul, a few generations earlier, was going to make war with the Amalekites. And God said to him, hey, these people are trying to wipe you out. I want you to go. I want you to make war with them. He says, I want you to destroy them, but don't touch their stuff. And Saul goes, and he takes their stuff, but he leaves the people alone. And because of one man's poor leadership and disobedience, generations later, all of Israel is now threatened. Haman should never have been born. Next point, Haman should not have commanded genocide. He was angry with one man, and he took it out on the group. He took an attribute of one person, and he made a universal inference to all people. He should not have commanded genocide. This is a prideful man. This is a man whose ego was wounded, and he takes it out on the many. Haman should not have commanded genocide. And finally, Xerxes should not have wielded his power so loosely. He just heard, hey, there's some people, they're causing problems, it's going to pay you a lot of money, and he just nods his head. He doesn't know people and faces. He just knows numbers and figures. And after decreeing genocide, he sits down to have a drink. This is poor leadership on his part. And things go from bad to worse. There's no grand, miraculous intervention. There's no fire from heaven. Seas don't part. There's no hand writing a message on the wall. It just quietly goes from bad to worse. But when we look closely in this story, in the book of Esther as a whole, that could be something great for you to study in your own time for the rest of the summer. We see God's fingerprints all over the story. And also, thankfully for us, we don't read the book of Esther in isolation, but we actually see it in the context within the whole Bible. And all of the Bible is pointing to one person. It's pointing to one event, and that's the person of Jesus. So actually, when we look at the story of Esther, we see breadcrumbs. We see fingerprints of the true Messiah who will come and deliver all of God's people for all of time. So we see in the book of Esther that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Because like Mordecai and Esther, he works with his cousin, John the Baptist, when he comes in. And like Xerxes, Jesus sits on his throne. But unlike Xerxes, he does what he could never do. He comes off his throne. He condescends himself 
and associates with the lowly. He doesn't just know numbers and figures, but He knows people and He knows faces. And God became a man. And as we see God's people celebrating Passover, celebrating God's past deliverance and waiting to see if He's going to deliver them again, we see in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And like the two men that we read of in Esther chapter 2, they revolted against the king. And we revolt against the king. And they were crucified. But instead of us being punished in the great scandal, Jesus took our place. He died. And because of His death, now we have freedom. He took the suffering so we could take the blessing. He took the death so we could have the life. He went to the grave so we wouldn't be bound to it anymore. And all of this helps us to answer our original question, if you remember a few minutes ago. We were looking at this question from the beginning. Where is God's goodness? Where is God's providence in my pain? In the things that happen to me when things go from bad to worse, and I don't see any dramatic intervention. Where's God's plan in all this? Where is, where's His goodness? Where's His wisdom? Where's His love? A great place, actually, for the church to go in times of trouble is the book of Psalms. David says this in Psalm 11, 3-4. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. This is an excellent psalm for challenging times because David was being told by his advisors he needs to flee. Things are getting messy. Things are getting crazy. You need to dip. You need to peace out. And he writes this. And he gives two answers for God's people. One for the head. One for the heart. I'll say them in opposite order. But the first thing he says is that the Lord's throne is in heaven. He says God is on His throne the Almighty One, eternal, perfect in His glory and splendor. He's sitting on His throne. He's sovereign. Outside of time, outside of space, He sees all things. He's not worried by this. He's not surprised. He doesn't call a little Trinity Council, Holy Spirit, Jesus, what, what should we do about this? I didn't see this coming. Do we see this coming? Not at all. He says God is on His throne and He's sovereign. And that's an answer for the head. That I know despite these things that I didn't see coming, God knows it. Now, God's sovereignty and providence is not comforting unless we're humble to recognize our position in His. If you want to take comfort in God's sovereignty, the cost of entry is humility. Consider the gap between a parent and a child. Imagine your kid's in the back seat, maybe still in a car seat. You're driving... And they say, do you know where we're going? You say, you still wet the bed. Shut your mouth. <laughs> What's the gap between a parent and a child? A child can't understand why this journey's taking so long. Why are you turning left? Why aren't we just going straight? Why can't we stop at McDonald's? What, what, were we just there 10 minutes ago? Yeah, but I want to go again. What's the gap in understanding between a parent and a child? And if that's the gap between us, what must the gap be? between an eternal, all-knowing God and finite creatures like ourselves. 
So to take comfort in God's sovereignty, we have to recognize that I am a child with a limited perspective, but God is on high, working all things together for His glory and my good. That's the first part. The second part is it says, the Lord is in His holy temple. A temple is simply where God's place and our place overlap. That's what a temple is. In John 1, it says, Jesus came and dwelt among us. That's literally the word for the tabernacle, for the tent. Jesus was where God's place and our place overlap. The Word became flesh. And Jesus came. And wherever He went, we saw where God's place and our place overlap. Where there was hunger, there was food. Where there was exploitation, there was justice. Where there was sickness, there was healing. In the Old Testament, God's place was relegated to the temple. And you could only go in there at certain places and at certain times because it was dangerous. People asked, God, show me your splendor. Show me your glory. And He said, I can't. It's going to kill you. But Jesus came. The Word became flesh. And now God's presence can be with His people. Not just in the temple, but it was in Christ. And when He flipped over the tables in the temple, He said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And he left and he sent his helper, God's Spirit. So now we can know God personally. It's not just a principle, but it's a person. So we can take comfort in two things. One, that yes, God has his purposes. I may not know them, but I know him. I don't always have access to God's reasons, but I do have access to God's heart. So let me bring you back to the story of the, the nine day old girl driving up to her funeral, kind of through the Kawartha areas. It's windy roads, you're not going fast. And I was, I was thinking through all these things. Why, why would this happen? Where's, where's the reason for this? Why did, why did she have to suffer? And I, I've got the books. I've got a couple degrees in philosophy of religion. I know the answers. I've written the papers. But I was still hurting. I was, I was dazed and confused. And I really wanted to just put on a podcast, something to numb my mind. But for some reason, I put on a worship playlist. I don't know why. And I was just listening to it, kind of letting it minister to myself. You try singing Good, Good Father on the way to a nine-day-old's funeral. I could barely get out half the words. And as I'm trying to to sing, to sing this, to, to preach to myself that, that God is a good Father in the midst of it, I, I felt His presence. I felt this, this gentle, consoling voice saying, hey, this hurts, and, and I get it, and I'm here with you in the midst of it. And so, what we do in the midst of our pain, when we're not sure about God's reasons, is we remind ourselves of the truth of what we do know that He is for us, that He's not against it, that I can, I can pound my chest, declare my pain, but I will also pound on the rock that sustains me. So here's a, a practical application of this. This is an exercise that I've done for myself. I'm not much of a journaler. I don't say, dear diary, today, you know, I went to Tim Hortons. It's not me. You can draw a chart, take a piece of paper, make a T-chart, one line across, one line down. On the left side, write the word fear, on the right side, write the word faith. And then just dump the truck. Write all your fears. Write all your anxieties. I'm worried that this can't be fixed, that God doesn't love me, that He's not in control, that this can't be redeemed. Put it all there. 
Journaling is very helpful because you can actually uh, express your thoughts and separate yourself from them physically. And then what we do with those fears is we respond in faith. Here's an example. The first fear, I'm alone. I'm alone in this. And by faith, you can respond with Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What about another fear? God doesn't care about me. If He cared about me, this wouldn't happen. He's supposed to be a loving Father. This wouldn't take place. You can respond 31.8. The Lord Himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Okay, what's another fear? God can't redeem this. There's no silver lining to this. This is too bad. There's no uno reverse. This is done. It's over. Romans 8.28 And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. In all things. Even if I can't see it, He's working. One more. The fear that this is too much for me to bear. I can't take this anymore. I feel like I'm going to break. It's hard to get out of bed in the morning. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. So let that be a comfort for us today, church, so many times we, we feel this pain in our life and we're just looking for a silver bullet or people try and offer us a silver bullet. But life isn't always problems to be solved, but these are seasons to be endured and places where we can know God and experience in Him and learn what faithfulness looks like in all the elements of God's character. So as we're looking at through this series in the summer, our stories and God's story and where they overlap, Let's learn from the story of God's people in the past and what this means for God's people today. Let's take comfort in this. Amen? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to continue in worship. Would you bow with me? God, we thank You for Your Word, its truth, the gift that it is, how it can comfort us. Father, I confess so often how quick I am to forget that you are in control, and not only in control, but you're working all things out for your glory and for our good. In the midst of this, I pray for the people right now that are slowly, quietly suffering, that your Spirit would just be gently drawing them to yourself. Would you be making your presence known to them, wooing them, reminding them, strengthening them, and also, I pray for the rest of us that aren't, aren't in a challenging season right now, but perhaps it's right around the corner. Would you give us the eyes and the faith to recognize those around us whom you would have be the hands and feet of Jesus to them? And would you give us the confidence and the courage and the discernment of how to step in and support these people as your body, Father, for you've given us to one another. We ask all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Would you stand as we continue in worship?